Luke 12 is where we'll be. We'll be in verse 41 through 59, and uh, we're going to go straight through. Um, stewardship is one of those things that I, as a pastor, have always been afraid to talk about, um, mainly because I think when, when you mention it and it even comes up, uh, people start to hold their wallets really tightly and say, I'm not going to give anything, and you're, just gonna, you're trying to get me to give. And, and so um, we try to grab our wallets, either be ready to give, or we hide our wallets. And so we think that stewardship is all about money. Um, but what I want to show you this morning, that stewardship is not just about how we handle our money. Uh, stewardship is about how God has given you a life to steward well for his glory and how you handle your life. And so money is just a sub-part part of that. So we're not going to talk about money this morning, um, so you can hold your breath. Um, but what I want to tell you this morning is how you can steward your life uh, for, the good, for the good of the gospel, for the kingdom of God. What you see in, throughout Scripture is this constant reminder of what it means to steward your life, how important your life really matters to God. Um, you have in Matthew 25, Jesus gives this parable of the talents. And in that parable, Jesus explains uh, a couple things. One, he gives, he gives out talents to three different guys. He gives these talents, he gives five talents to one guy. He gives two talents to another guy. And the, only, and the one guy, he only gives one talent to. And, and what the story begins to show us and how it begins to break down is how these guys spend their talents, how their guys spend this amount, this portion that God generously gives to them to these undeserving people. And so in this parable, you have the guy who was given five talents. Well, he uses that well because he goes and he uses it to make five more. And then the, then the next guy, the second guy, he does the exact same thing. He uses his two talents to make two more. And then the one who... This one guy who only had one talent, he was ticked off because the other guy's got five and the other guy's got one. So what did he do? He hid his talent. And it says from, and Scripture actually says, his master's money. He hid his master's um, money. And so here you have two guys. One's given five, one gives them two, what was given two. They steward well. And, and Scripture actually says, the guy, the, the master who distributes these talents out, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so that's good news, right? Um, if we steward over the things that God gives us, he says, you will enter into the joy of your master. But he also, to the guy who spoils it and the guy who wastes the, very, the one little talent that he's given, he, he doesn't steward it well for the kingdom of his master. Here's what he says. This is very painful to hear. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. Is that a compliment? Then he equates his punishment to hell. He says, it's wailing and gnashing of teeth. You remember hearing that in scripture? That's where it comes from. The wailing and gnashing of teeth, the response to this person is they're probably not believers because of how they manage and how they steward the things that God has given them. And so perhaps a mark in what Jesus is explaining to us in the parables and how we steward our life is a mark of really belief. And so the challenge that we have this morning that we're confronted with is if you don't steward your life well, perhaps you don't know the master. Perhaps you don't know the savior, the one who gives you these things. And so I think grasping the gospel 
the very foundation of the gospel is understanding that God, the sovereign God over the universe, hands each of us a, a hand of cards. And what we do with the, that deck, what we do with that hand matters. Some people have all aces. Some, I, I'm like a, I'm a two seven guy, all right? That's what God's given me, all right? But I got to work with that. And I've got to work with that two seven. But some of you are going to be ticked off because you're looking at somebody else's hand. You're cheating. Um, and you're going, that person has a better deck. And you know what? I can't live my life. I can't do anything with my life because I don't have what this person has. I don't have the talents. I don't have the resources. I don't have the um, intelligence. I don't have the giftedness that these people have. And so you begin to just give up and you throw up your arms. But here's the thing. I think part of grabbing the gospel, part of realizing what Christ accomplished on the cross puts us in our place in the sense of God has given me so much more than what I deserve, which is hell. So the hands that he deals you, the things that he gives you, the suffering that you face, the goodness that you, the good things that you deal with and go through, the education that you have or the education that you don't have, all of these are part of his plan. It's the hand that he deals you, and it's how you handle and manage that hand. It's how you display the gospel. And so if you're a person who's constantly angry, the things that God has placed in your life, maybe there's some uh, gospel issues there. And so let's just see how Jesus handles this matter. Look in verse 41 in Luke 12, chapter 12. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Now, what parable was he talking about? Well, let me just kind of bring you up to pace here. Jesus is right in the middle of explaining this parable about the, what the kingdom of God is like. And by the way, all of the parables that Jesus explains, it's him explaining what the kingdom of God is like. And he's comparing it to what the world is like. And so when the disciples hear a parable, they're wondering, is this for the crowd or is this for me? And so this is exactly what Jesus, what Peter is asking Jesus here. And what you're seeing here is something very interesting because he is consistently giving this parable about being prepared, being ready for Christ's coming, for his second coming. And so it as we even look at Easter and Christ ascended to heaven, we now wait for his second coming. And what we do with that time, it, it matters. And so Jesus is explaining this very same parable, and he explains it like this. He's explaining it like there's a master, a, a wealthy master who has all of these servants who uh, look over his estate. And this master is gone, and he's away at this uh, wedding feast. And while he's away, he wants his servants to do very specific things. He wants them to steward well uh, his uh, riches and his possessions. He wants his, his servants to, to look over his things in, in such a, a, a very um, loving, gracious way that they would look to their master in this way. And so the, the parable goes like this. The master goes to the wedding, but he comes comes back from the wedding, and, and the servants are thrilled that their master's come. And they're waiting by the door, and as soon as he comes in, the, the, the servants say, it's, even uses the language, gird up your loins, right? Really weird phrasing, right? Gird up your loins. He's saying, be ready for the master to come, and something really weird happens in this parable. When the master shows up, they are anxiously awaiting him at the door, but what he doesn't do is say, feed me. 
What he actually does is he puts on the servant's garment and the servants sit down at the table and the master feeds the servants. And so it's a totally different thing because what he's explaining is when Christ comes in his second coming, when Christ comes and in, in, um, dies in your place, he's there to serve you. You will be the one who will enter into the joy of your master. And it's, it's a big picture of the gospel. And so he's giving this, and right in the middle, the ginger, right, Peter, the hot-headed guy, the one who says stupid things out loud, he's like, God, is this for me? Like, I want to know if this is for me or not. Is this going to benefit me? And so let me show you what Jesus says and how he responds. And the Lord said, Who then uh, is faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? And this is where it gets a little weird, I'll be honest. Look at verse 43. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set over him his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to listen, to beat the male and female servants. Like this guy's just not beating up girl, guys. He's beating up girls, right? To eat and to drink and to get drunk. And the master of that servant will come on the day he does not expect him, the hour he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did not deserve a beating or did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was, much was given of him, much will be required for him whom he, they entrusted much. They will demand more. All right, you guys get that? Let's pray. Uh, what is he talking about here, right? What in the world is he saying? Because you got this guy who's supposed to be over this. He's like a, a manager, so he's a servant, but he's also a leader over these other servants, and he is abusive. He's getting drunk. He's beating up guy servants. He's even beating up girl servants. Like, he's low, man. He is low. Um, and, and, and Jesus is saying, when that master comes back, this guy is going to get owned, right? He's going to get cut to pieces. But to, for us to understand what he's talking about here, it's important to understand exactly who he's talking to. Because what he's doing is he's answering whose question? Peter's. He's answering Peter's question, and so who's Peter? Peter's the guy who's going to be later become the rock. He's going to become one of the pillars of the church, and so he's telling Peter this, knowing that one day you're going to be the guy who is over all of these under, under sheep. You're going to be the guy who's leading these sheep, and these are the servants that are going to serve me and make much of me, and you're going to be one of the guys that's going to be over this. So when I read this, I think he's talking to a guy who's ultimately going to be a pastor, And so he's talking to a pastor in how he shepherds and manages the flock, how he shepherds the servants who the Lord entrusted him to. And so I'm a a little freaked out here when I read this because I'm like, if I don't do that well, God's going to cut me to pieces, right? God's going to come after me. And there is a sense of urgency here for how 
the word is handled. Because look exactly what is it, is, is it that he's supposed to steward. Because it's like, well, obviously he shouldn't be getting drunk. Obviously he shouldn't be beating up his servants. But, but the main thing here that Jesus points out is in verse 47. It says, in the servant who knew his master's what? Will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. What he's talking about is this. It's exactly what Ephesians 5, 17 says. It says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, how do we know the will of the Lord? It's the word of God. That's how we know the will of the Lord. Uh, you have Ephesians 5. You have uh, Colossians 3 that talk about letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that this is the way that you will know the will of the Lord is to allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. And so what he's describing here is how the communicator over the servants that, he's o- uh, that are under him, how he's communicating the will of God to them, how he's proclaiming um, the word of God to them. And he's saying, this is what a good steward um, looks like. This is what a good steward looks like. And so when I read that, I'm, I'm a pastor, so I'm like going, There is an urgency here and there's a reverence here for how we manage and how we handle the word of God and how it's being proclaimed. It's just like James 3.1 says. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, greater strictness. And so when I hear that, I tremble because it matters in how his word is carried out. But listen, I'm not the only one that's God is challenging here. Because what you also have in verse 48, he says this, but the one who did not know and, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. So I get really beat up. You just get a light beating. All right. But we all get beat up. All right. Because what is he talking about here? He's talking about It's serious in how I proclaim the word of God, but it's also serious on how you listen and hear the word of God, because that matters to him as as well, how you hear and listen to the word of God. 2 Timothy 4, uh, 2 through 4, it says this, preach the word, be be ready in season and out of season, reprove, uh, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming. Listen to this. This is where you as a listener this is where me as a listener have to really tone in here to what he's saying. It says, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But listen, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their what? Their own passions. Are you guys awake? Own passions. And will turn away from listening to the, word, to the truth and wander off. Into miss. And it just goes the same with what he says in 1 Timothy 4 7. It says, Have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. And so there's an urgency here in how, if we look at our lives and how to manage our lives, there's an urgency in here how we even deal with what we believe about Scripture, how we listen to Scripture, how we apply it, how we live it out, what we know about God, how we walk intimately with Him through His Word. And so I see in my own time, and I'm a young church planner. I'm 33 years old. I know lots of church planners. I know lots of young, hip guys that want to plant churches. And what I see more often than not, honestly, are 
silly myths that are constantly being taught and being explained. I see it from a very large scale to even very small scale. Where what you have are people who are running droves to hear what suit their own passions and desires. When constantly I see pastors who don't even have the Bible in front of them when they preach. I'm like, what do you have to talk about that is so important that God's word needs to be put on the shelf and that you have a better opinion about God than he does about himself? It just seems a little backwards to me, right? But I constantly see it because there's in that is communicated, hey, listen, I'm the pastor. Trust what I say. And there's a fear here because what God is bringing out is exactly the opposite of that, of how we steward this and how we manage this to the servants who are under us. And so I think where we get irreverent, silly myths is when we begin to walk outside of the gospel. Because honestly, the preaching that I consistently hear more and more and more of are application points or principle-driven sermons, not gospel-driven, not scripture-driven sermons that will lead you to, you can do this on your own without the finished work of Christ. And I consistently see this where you hear sermons that are true and they, wouldn't, they, they are not any more true if Jesus didn't die and didn't raise from the grave. That's scary to me. Is that scary to you? That scares me. Because if you're telling me something that is true, that I can do on my own, that Jesus didn't die and Jesus didn't raise from the grave, it wouldn't make any difference. Then you're not preaching the gospel. And by the way, people that are hearing it, and when we fall into those traps, we don't live out the gospel either. We're just falling into what Paul says to young Timothy, irreverent, silly myths. And so... I think the preaching that we need to hear, we need to be reminded of, the preaching that I want to consistently do, not on my own strength, but through the work of the Holy Spirit, is preaching that would say, this is true about your life only because Christ died for you. You can only do this. Because if I just give you principles and say, go do those things, guess what? You're not going to be able to do them on your own. You're not. I can say, listen, we're going to, seven steps to get out of debt. Go, right? I'll give you all seven, five steps to get yourself out of a, you know, a, a horrible relationship. You know, go. You know, three ways to not be divorced, right? Go. You're not going to be able to do those things because it's not the gospel. The gospel is, hey, try to do those things. You can on your own strength. You need to be reminded of the gospel. You need to be reminded of what Jesus did for you. You need to cling to Jesus. You need to put your, hand, your, your life in his hands and let him do it through you. That is the gospel. And so we want to proclaim the gospel well because it's my job to do that over you because I don't want to get a severe beating, all right? I'll just be honest. It's a little selfish. But I also want you to, as Jesus said to, this, to his disciples, to enter into the joy of your master. There's no joy outside of the gospel. It's only found in the truth of the gospel. And so I, I think... Preaching now, it seems so watered down that even the non-elect can't reject it. Because it's so, you can do this. You've got the power. You've got the strength. That's not the gospel. And so, God takes this seriously. 
And there's two, two parts in that. One is how the Word of God is handled, how, we, how the church is teaching the Word of God, but also how the Word of God is heard, how the Word of God is received. And so we do that because we don't want you to, to, to find a teacher that's suiting your own passions. What I do is try to proclaim the Word of God so that you can have to deal with just the Word of God, not with me. Because you're not finding something to suit your own passions. You just have to deal with the, the creator God of all things. And so let's look at what Jesus explains next in verse 48. He says, Everyone to whom much was, was uh, given of him will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so Jesus grows this thing, not with people with itching ears but those who will respond to the master's will. So the growth that I want to see in integrity is a growth of, man, I think we should grow numerically because it shows that we're being faithful to the gospel. It shows that we're making disciples. It shows that we're proclaiming the gospel in our communities. It shows that we're, we're living out our, our lives missionally. Um, but I want to grow in depth as well in how we're growing in the gospel, how we're growing in the word. And so what I, what I want to do is, because what God is telling us here, if we're faithful to that, he will provide growth to that. He will give us more because we've been faithful with, with the people that we have. So the more and more we do that, the more and more we proclaim it because God's word matters. We, we talk about you know, not saying the Lord's name in vain, and we always think, well, that's GD, right? Don't say GD, and then you're good. But I really do think, I mean, I, don't, I would encourage you not to say GD, by the way. But, but let me add to that what he's saying. What he's saying is this. Don't say that God said something that he didn't actually say. That's taken the Lord's name in vain. So he handles his will seriously. If you're saying, this is the will of the Lord, and it doesn't line up with what Scripture says, then you are taking the Lord's name in vain. He's saying, don't do that, because I will not give you more. I will entrust to the one who is faithful. I will give him more. Look at verse 49. I came to cast a fire on the earth that would, uh, that, uh, and that wood, it, w- it would be already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you not think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What he's talking about here is this division that's going to happen because of the gospel. He uses the language of fire. He's talking about a refiner's fire here for believers. Um, But you you can also see fire as judgment, judgment on non-believers. Then he uses this language of man being baptized, and he's got, I've I've got a baptism to be baptized. And you're saying, what are you talking about? Is he talking about a second baptism? He's not talking about that. He's talking about what he's going to do on the cross, what he's going to accomplish on the cross. And he's saying, this is going to create a division. And then he just goes into verse 54, and then he explains what that looks like. What he says, look what he says to the crowds. So he says all this to the disciples. Then he turns to the crowds, and this is what he says. Verse 54, when you see a a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. 
And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat. And then it happens. You hypocrites, do you not know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky? But why do you uh, not know how to interpret the present time? And what he's telling these people is this. You don't even realize. You have all of the signs. He's telling these unbelieving Jews who are standing there that would have been able to know and interpret when Christ was coming. They would have known and heard all of these prophecies when Christ was coming. He's saying, I've given you all of these outward signs that the Messiah is coming. And I'm here and I'm standing right in front of you. And you do not even see me. And now there is this division of these disciples who believe and these unbelieving Jews who do not want to believe that he is truly the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, listen, what the cross is going to accomplish when I go through this baptism that I eagerly await because you are going to see a definitive line between those who believe and those who don't believe when the cross, the finished work of cross is finished, you're going to start to see the separation and even households will be divided. Matthew 10 even says a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He's describing daughters and mothers, mother-in-laws, daughter-in-laws, Brothers, husbands, the cross is going to bring a division point. And so, if you're truly a believer in Jesus, part of the gospel is that you love Jesus more than you do your own family. So the text doesn't give you license, um, because I think what people do when they read this, they say, Oh, the gospel brings division, so I need to be being in division. So everywhere I go, I need to be handing people tracts and making them feel uncomfortable and asking them where they would go if they died. Right? That'll, that'll win them over. Um, and we do that all the time. And, and this isn't licensed for us to be zealous jerks. All right? It's not. And, and, and I don't want you to, to walk away and go into your workplace and, and be confrontational and be annoying and be that person and say, well, they don't like me. I'm suffering for Jesus. No, I'm like, no, they're suffering because you work with them. All right? It has nothing to do with anything, right? But what he's telling his disciples is because of the finished work of the gospel in your heart, the change effect in your life, there should be some level of division there because they see the gospel transform you in such a way that you look so different and that difference convicts the heart of an unbeliever to the point that they don't want to have anything to do with you. If you want to serve somebody, uh, if you want to really reach somebody to the gospel, what you do is you have to serve them. You have to be the nail-scarred servant hand that Jesus was. Serve them, love them, definitely proclaim the gospel to them. They have to hear words to hear the gospel, proclaim the gospel to them. And this is what he's saying here. But what it will cause is a division. So there's this non-patronizing, humble approach to how we share. Yes, but on the flip side of that, There's also this call in our life to love Jesus more than our family, more than our friends, more than our co-workers, more than the people that we want to impress. And so, this is the hand that God deals you. So for some of you, you have to have difficult decisions to make. Um, Some of you who um, are pressured to date, if you're a college student, you're pressured to date because everyone around you is dating but you know you're not mature enough to handle a relationship because what God calls you to is more. Because if you're a husband 
Uh, if you want to be a husband one day, God calls you to love your wife like Christ loved the church. So maybe you probably need to be discipled before you start dating somebody because you're not mature enough to be dating anybody. And the world would look at that and say, dude, why don't you just date a girl and hook up? Like, that's what I do. I've got all these girls that I'm dating. Why don't you? But maybe the life, the radical life that they need to see in you is, you know what? I'm going to take this serious because I think God takes marriage seriously. So I'm going to take my life seriously. So maybe I'm not going to date so I can be discipled well so that one day I can be the husband that God wants me to be. And so maybe if you're a girl here and you're pressured in that same way, maybe say, I want to love my husband as the church responds to Christ and submits to Christ. I want to submit to my godly husband in that way. And so for me to live this life, I have to be disciple well. I have to be in communion with other godly women who are older than me. And that's going to look radically different. And girls around you will think you're crazy and they will probably hate you for doing it. But this is what he's saying is this will cause division. For some of you who are engaged, you got some of your friends, some of your even parents will probably tell you, Dude, just shack up. It will save you tons of money. You know, you have, instead of having two apartments, you can have one. You can already be playing house. You could already be sleeping in the same bed. But you know the gospel calls you to purity. The gospel calls you to not, for you guys, not to let your girl look like a prostitute. And so you know, it's really quiet in here, by the way. Um, and so you know the gospel calls you to that. And so people are going to look at you and say, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make financial sense for you to make that decision. No, it doesn't. But I care more about my God than my money. I care more about my God than what people think about me. So I'm going to live separate so I can be pure. And I've got to be honest with you. People that tell me, and I get this all the time, we're living together. We're not having sex. I'm like, there is something medically wrong with you. All right? <laughs> There's something, she gets out of the shower, she's got a towel around her, and you don't think about having sex. You're, there's something wrong with you, dude. Something jacked about you. And so, but what really matters is how we handle our lives. For some of you, you know that um, the, the world around you is pressuring you to take that promotion. But if you know if you take it, it will suck the very life out of your family. You won't be able to disciple your kids. You won't be able to love your spouse you won't be able to do these things that God has commanded in Scripture for you to do. So you don't take it. You don't take the promotion. You stay at a certain pay level so that you can have a gospel-centered life. And I will tell you this. People around you will hate you. People around you will despise that you made that choice. And it will confuse them. And it will baffle them. Some of you need to leave and go and live overseas. Because you know God has gifted you specifically for that. And you have a passion and desire for that. Maybe you should chase that passion and desire. And some people would say, well, didn't you just finish college? Don't you just have this degree? This is the amount of money that you can make if you do that. And some of you will hate you because, some, some people will hate you because of the commitment that you've made for Jesus to make much of your king. And so Jesus is advocating a life that looks different. There's not always going to make you popular, but it's a life that is unashamed of the gospel. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, and this is how we steward our lives well. So I think there needs to be this tension um, today with the church and the, and the world and the surrounding crowds on how we handle Jesus, how we handle our lives. So when the crowds look in, they see, they know that Jesus is the Messiah. 
you have this crowd around these disciples that Jesus is talking to, and the crowd is very confused on who the Messiah is. They have all the signs around them. He's like, listen, you still don't believe. But what if the crowds around us and see us, what if we were the signs that the Messiah is true, that the Messiah is real because of the lives that God, the Spirit, empowers us to live? But look what Jesus says next, and then I'll close here in verse 57 to 59. Jesus is still talking to the crowd here in verse 57, but look what he says. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Least he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out of here until you've paid the very last penny. And what he's doing here is just giving a very clear, plain gospel analogy. If you have this judge who God is this judge, and you have these, you have these adversaries who is Jesus here in this picture, and this, these opposers, this is the crowd. The crowd doesn't believe that he's a Messiah, so they war against him, and they are accusing him, and Jesus is like, listen, we can just settle this in court. But by the way, I don't think you're going to like it because my dad happens to be the judge. And oh, by the way, he's ticked at you because you're a sinner and you haven't repented. And it's not going to go well for you. But listen, if you go directly to me, I can be your advocate. I've already paid the penalty of what you are to face in front of this judge. But if you go to the judge without me, he's going to throw the book at you. You're going to get thrown in jail and you will not be able to pay the debt to get out. You're going to be placed in a fire that's unquenching, that's eternal. You will not get out on your own work, on your own merit. But listen, if you come to me, I'm the one who died in your place. I'm the one who gave my life for you. So if you come to me, you will be okay with the Father. He will look at you, and your sins will be forgiven. And that is the gospel. And so maybe for us, God does hand us a deck of cards or a hand of cards. And maybe the response is always just hand it over to our advocate, who is Jesus. And I think we fall into, and the tension that we face with that is we want to cling on to our own hand and we say, no, this is mine. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make it happen. I'm not going to surrender this over. This is not his. But what he's telling us this is, You'll never know his will until by the Spirit of God you handle his word or hear his word till you surrender that to Jesus. So I think for us, um, at Integrity, you know, we, we try to preach the word, we try to proclaim it, do the best we can handling it. I think for a lot of you, you just, you just want to know more, you just want to know more, you just want to know more, you just want to know more. And he's telling you, listen, I'm not going to give you more until you're faithful with what I've already given you. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give you more. And I think everyone wants to know more, and they want to know new things about God. They want to know new mysteries about God, but no one wants to practice what they already know. And so for you, maybe just surrendering that over to God and saying, listen, God, I want to know more about you, but I, I don't even practice what I already know. So God, I surrender that to you this morning. This is, this is I want to hear your word well. I want to be a, a servant that doesn't get a beating later. I want to handle this well, and I want to steward my life well, and this is the way I want to steward it. 
And maybe for some of you, there's a boldness issue there that Jesus pressed in on you this morning where there's no division anywhere you go. You're always the person that is liked. You're always the person that is loved above all things. Everyone thinks, oh, that, that person's just easygoing and great. I'm not telling you you just need to be difficult and challenging. I don't, I'm not telling you you need to stand outside of the abortion clinic or anything like that. I'm not going there. But what I am saying is, is there something in your life that because of your commitment to Christ, because of your uh, boldness in Christ and wanting to follow Christ above all things and your love for Christ above all things, is there anything in your life that people see and it just causes division no matter what you do? If there's not, maybe you're just a coward. And you need to submit that over to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a coward. I'm ashamed of you, God. Lord, don't let me be ashamed of you. Let people see that my life is different because of my commitment to you. That's where the boldness comes from. So what this is all about is just looking at the small details of our life and how we're surrendering that over to what Christ has done when he says it is finished. So how are we doing with that this morning? Whose life is it anyway? Is it ours or is it God's? Let's pray.